0: Gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Can you digger greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um thanks to everybody who signed up for the 30 30-day 30 free trial. I hope you like it. I hope you stick around. Um Really appreciate the support. Thanks to everybody who showed up for the dispatch live event. (laughs) Now that they've kind of, looks like we're not going to be having more debates. I'm not sure we're going to have more post debate ones, but we will have more dispatch live events, but the normal dispatch live events are only for paid members of the dispatch community. So if you want to check them out, please uh, sign up as soon as you can. It would be great. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about The Dispatch in a minute, but um, I should just get started and say today's episode is sponsored by our friends at the um, Bradley Foundation's We the People Bradley Speakers series, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Um, So I'm getting a late start, and there's just so friggin' much to talk about. I wrote a very long G-file. I'm not sure whether many people will like it. I know some people will hate it. Um, and, uh, I, I'm not gonna salvage too, I'm not gonna recycle too much of it here, but, you know, it was just this thing that I want to get out of my head, um, about, well, about this craziness, right? I mean, things are going bananas and, you know, what was it, three weeks ago that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died? And since then, We've had a presidential debate that went spectacularly bad. The president of the United States got a COVID diagnosis after Hope Hicks announced that she had one. Um, Then, uh, seventy-two hours later, uh, the president is going started going around saying he was essentially cured, and now he's going all in on that stuff with essentially a miracle cure that has not been approved by the FDA, is not ready to be distributed to the entire country, but he's selling it like the salesman you know, he once was, tell you anything that you have to be told to get you to sign on the dotted line and worry about the details later. So sure, you can get the undercoating. Sure, you can get the granite countertop. Sure, you can get this. Sure, you can get that. Sure, you can get a miracle cure of COVID because I'm cured, um, even though it's not clear that he is. And it seems fairly desperate to me, but, uh, you know, maybe it'll work on some people. I have my suspicions that it won't. Um, and I have this general feeling that the, uh, the, the coming month is going to be much crazier than the preceding month. And it's gonna, um, upend a lot of people. And that got me thinking about how I got through the last four years, which for me and my line of work have been nonstop craziness. I think there are a lot of people because they have. Uh, More healthily oriented lives um, don't obsess about politics and aren't in the mix as much. And so it didn't necessarily seem as crazy, or the craziness seemed more entertaining, um, or at the very least, uh, more distant and easier, um, though not impossible to tune out. But for people like me, it was a pretty lived experience. And that got me in this sort of retrospective, uh, introspective mood about, um, uh, you know how i've gotten through all this so it's a little memoiristic i suppose i don't know i mean I, again i never know when i send these things out whether people are going to hate them or like them um because by the end of it i'm so sort of drained i write them so fast i always start them you know basically the day they're due i think maybe twice a year three times a year i'll work on one in advance but i never like it friday morning when i look at it again so, um, it's sort of a weird cathartic draining experience, which is probably why I shouldn't be doing these solo podcasts, um, Friday afternoons because the thing takes a lot out of me. And, um, uh, but the larger, the basic point I, I made in the G file is, a uh, one you've heard me reference here a bunch of times, which is just that I think that. You know, for me, resolving just to tell the truth as I see it, regardless of whether or not it was bad for my team or the other team, was the only way I could keep my sanity. Other people made other choices. Um, Other people are more team-spirited. And, um, and, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the points I make is that for 20 years, basically, I could write all sorts of things about populism and groupthink and moral equivalent of war thinking and um, you know the problems with the Popular Front mentality you know which is basically this idea that really originally originates on the left and I'm not going to pronounce the French but it's you know il ne enemy uh, they whatever uh, I can't even remember I thought I remember what the word for, for left was. Anyway, it's the idea that um, there are no enemies on the left, that all of our enemies are the fascists or the monarchists or whoever, and we must have a united front um, with them. uh, And so we have to overlook the foibles of our own side. And for 20 years, more or less, you know, I mean, I picked my fights on the right with various people, but they were sort of in-house debates. They were collegial um for the most part i mean sometimes they got excessive and you know sometimes i was pretty harsh on you know people i really couldn't stand um like the videar crowd and that kind of thing but i'm i'm proud of that because one of the jobs we had at national review was to sort of like texas rangers on the frontier we had to we would ride the 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 outer lands between respectable conservatism and the fever swamps and that was a mission of bill buckley's and um, I thought it was an important mission to keep alive at National Review. But for the most part, I aimed my fire almost entirely leftward. And um, and so when I saw examples of populism or cults of personality or um, the use of crisis politics to circumvent debate, uh, I got a lot of applause and support from the right because that's what I was aiming at. And one of the things that sort of liberated me in the Trump era, for good or for ill, you know, I mean, I lost a lot of friends, I lost a lot of fans, I lost a lot in book sales, I lost a lot in TV appearances and speeches and all that kind of stuff, and I'm not entirely bitter about it, you know, I have some, I have some resentments on it, but it doesn't consume me or anything, but watching the sort of body snatcher takeover of so much of the right, um, from Trumpism, it, you know, aroused in me, I, you know, I, I was against those things as a ab- matter of abstract political philosophy. Uh, you know, I re- can't tell you how many times I've written about, you know, the dangers of the seductions of crowds and of mass politics and of populism and cults of personality. And my examples were usually plucked from the left, in part because I thought the right didn't have much of that. And I don't think it did for, you know, most of my lifetime. There were counter but they were few and far between. And they weren't as horrific to me by any stretch of the imagination as what I saw on the left. And then I saw the same phenomena manifesting themselves on the right. And so my first two books were almost entirely aimed leftward. And my, my third book, because I had come kind of exhausted with a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the stupidity of a lot of the public debates now. And, you know, when I've grown up a little bit, I was influenced by a bunch of different writers about this stuff. I changed some of my views about the role that intellectual history and ideology play. And so I wrote my my third book as a an attempt to actually persuade people who disagree with me, mostly from the left, but also from the right, about why I think, you know, liberal democratic capitalism is great and why we should be grateful for it and all that. But, you know, the first two books were aimed leftward, and there's... I mean, I often say I would, I would write liberal fascism differently today, but there's very little in either tyranny cliches, wildly underrated, or liberal fascism that I would take back um, in terms of the grand themes of things, um, in terms of the core arguments of things. And um, I've never, never encountered, and lots of people have written them, um, a sustained attack on, on liberal fascism that I felt rebutted the, the core arguments of the book. And, um, and that closed for both the reviews where the author or the reviewer had read the book and those where the reviewer had not read the book. Um, and so anyway, but now, you know, there's no denying the rise of populism. There's no denying the popular front mentality stuff. There's no denying that the Saul Alinsky attitudes and, and modes of operation that I decried on the left have infected big chunks of the right. And, um, and for me, you know, the recourse was to just simply tell the truth. As I saw it, that was the only way I could get, I could keep my job. There's the only way I could do what I do. I could keep writing syndicated columns. That was the only way I could start the dispatch. That was the only way I could write for national review. That was the only way I could write books. It was the only way I could look at myself in the mirror is to, um, just tell the truth as I see it. Doesn't mean I'm right doesn't mean I have a monopoly on the truth. you know. As I note in the G file, um, all the blind men who touched the elephant, they were all wrong, but none of them were liars. you know. And there are different perspectives that I, I don't see or agree with, but that doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that I'm more confident that I'm right. And um, so anyway, that's what I wrote about. I guess part of what sparked it was this stupid spat um, I had with Steve Schmidt on Twitter. Um, you know, and Steve Schmidt's a perfect example of what I am talking about about a he's not on the right, but he's got this popular front mentality. he's He's um swallowed whole all of these, you know, Nazi analogies, which, contrary to people who think I'm being a hypocrite for criticizing that stuff, a big part of the reason why I wrote liberal fascism was to criticize the use and abuse of Nazi analogies, which I think were misapplied and misunderstood and, um, used as a smear campaign on classical liberals, on conservatives, and on libertarians. And, um, um and I don't like Nazi analogies. And people think that that somehow, me saying that it contradicts what I wrote, when in reality, it proves that they didn't read the book, or they didn't read it, you know, uh, uh comprehensively and, and in good faith. Um, so anyway, what pissed me off was this morning, Um, A friend of mine texted me a tweet from Steve Schmidt where he accused Matt Lewis and Noah Rothman of, in this sort of, this faux intellectual colloquy he was having with Ann Applebaum. I have have respect for Ann Applebaum. She she is a legitimate intellectual. I have my disagreements with her, but I really enjoyed her latest book. Um, I wouldn't mind having her on the podcast. And I, I have no idea what he was responding to with Ann Applebaum, but he drags in Matt Lewis and Noah Rothman, two of the, you know, f- comparatively few. I mean, they're a bunch, but not in absolute terms compared to everybody who's lost their mind. But Noah and Matt, you know, they're among the few people out there who are doing what I'm talking about, which is just simply calling it like they see it, even if it's bad for their partisan team. And that means that they're supportive of Republican efforts when they agree with what the Republicans are doing or think the Republicans are doing them in good faith or think that the objectives of Republicans are worthwhile and ideologically and intellectually defensible. And they criticize them when they don't think they are. I don't, you know, and that doesn't mean I always agree with Noah and Matt's analysis, but the idea that they're, um, you know, as Steve Schmidt put it, you know, the equivalent of Nazi collaborators in Vichy, France. And he drags out references to the Theresienstadt uh, concentration camp, which was this sort of Potemkin concentration camp. I've been there in uh, Czechoslovakia that the Nazis used to prove to the Red Cross and the international press that um, the Jews were being humanely treated and to invoke all that, in particular about Noah, who works for commentary, you know, and as a Jewish guy working for a Jewish magazine to call them, uh, he also calls them cowardly and all of this stuff and compares them to Nazi collaborators. And I lost my temper. and I said he was full of shit. And I think he is. And I think it was an incredibly dumb thing to say. And, but you know, I don't want to regurgitate rehash the entire Twitter fight. I don't have a lot of respect for Matt, Sch- for, for for Steve Schmidt. Um, I've known him. I know lots of people who've worked with him over the years, um, and his shtick. And I do think it's a shtick on MSNBC, where now he is posing this as this sort of humorless, truth-telling Cicero, and the 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 voice of the the free French in occupied America. Is just, there's just too much muchness to it. And I called him out on it. And, you know, and said, you know, this idea that going around telling left-wing audiences exactly what they want to hear from an ostensible Republican, um, sort of in the grand tradition of John Dean and Kevin Phillips, um, and making scads of money in the process is not... Bravery. And it's certainly not bravery compared to what people like Matt Lewis and, and, and Noah have to put up with, where they don't please either side. And, but, but Steve and the Lincoln Project, and, then like, and I like some of the guys at the Lincoln Project. I have a lot of, I, I, I like George Conway. Um, and, you know, I think that the, but the, 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 the philosophical and political assumption of the, of the Lincoln Project is it's a popular front one. And therefore, in order order to gain entry into the um, into the the grand coalition of the righteous, you have to sort of rip off all of your medals and emblems and insignia of your old conservative uniform and pay obeisance to the new groupthink um, on the left about all of this stuff. And I I take a backseat to nobody in my criticisms of of Donald Trump. so I, it, my, my point here is not to defend Donald Trump, um, but the resistance mode, you know, the sort of Jen Rubin resistance mode where you just grab the nearest weapon to hand, regardless of the facts, where you can't countenance the idea that maybe, I don't know, um, these Middle East deals are are better than the alternative, and you can't give, you know, Trump a single good day in the news cycle. Um, that's the popular front stuff that I can't stand. And I can't stand it on the left. And I can't stand it on the right, where every single day, no matter what Trump does, you know, friends of mine go on TV, former friends too, go on TV. They go on, you know, their radio shows and they have to spin every giant turd dropping as, you know, uh, not just proof of a pony, but proof of the manifest genius and the chess master you know, uh, acumen of, of Donald Trump. And you're not allowed to sort of, you know, admit every now and then the guy screwed up. And, you know, and the thing that makes it so palpable for me, and I know I'm a broken record on this, is that I know for a lot of these people, when the cameras are off, they'll agree he screwed up. And I know that even more so that three years ago, they really would have agreed that he screwed up but they've gotten caught up in this sort of homogenizing effect of binary choice and partisan, um, you know, coalition, popular front stuff. And it, it drives me nuts. Um, so anyway, that was part of what set me off about all this is that, you know, I think the very essence of serious thinking, whether it's in philosophy or in economics or just in life. Is the ability to make distinctions between superficially similar things and to understand that differences of degree or differences in kind, to understand that um, the lethality, you know, that all poisons are about the dosage. And um, we get this, this, this centrifugal force thing in our politics right now, which says whichever side of the little spinning dervish tube thing you're pulled to, that's the side you have to stay on and you can't, you're not allowed to get escape velocity from that gravity to say, Hey, you know, look, the other side has a point about this, but they're wrong about that. And so for me, it was, you know, this decision that let the chips fall where they may. I'm just going to call them like they see them. And I got to say, that's, that was a big part. You know, I was not pushed out of national review and I did not quit in some huff. I love those guys. I mean, I have my disagreements with some of them, um, but I had my disagreements with them over 20 years too. I mean, that's fine that but I respect them. You know, Rich Lowry, Jim Garrity, Ramesh Panuru, Andy McCarthy, um, Charlie Cook, love all those guys. And I, I don't want, you know, and Jack Butler's over there now. Um, and I don't, I, you know, once you start listing people, you have to worry about leaving somebody on Ramesh Panuru, obviously, um, love them all and respect them all. Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to start the dispatch is that I felt like I was causing pain and discomfort and inconveniences for an institution that I truly loved and still deeply respect and admire, um, by following this credo of telling the truth as I saw it. And I want to be abundantly clear. I think everybody there tells the truth as they see it too. I mean, certainly Kevin Williamson does another guy I should have mentioned. Um, uh, but you can tell the truth as you see it and just disagree. And when, you know, and because of my feelings about Trump and populism and what was happening to the right, my disagreements and David French's disagreements were so pronounced that we thought it would be, you know, that it gave us some permission to, to, to go and, and do the dispatch. And um, anyway, there were other reasons why we started the dispatch too. It was a fun. It's fun. It's an adventure. We're, we're building an institution. We're doing important things. I love working with Steve. Um, but uh, anyway, I don't know why I went back on that tangent. Um, but anyway, that's how I get through the day is just try to tell the truth as I see it. And, um, one of the things I'm truly heartened and edified by is that even the many, many listeners and readers who disagree with me about a lot of this stuff, um, they they appreciate that I'm coming from that direction and that, um, they want to reward it and and for that, I'm supremely grateful oh, so um, back on this covid thing um I happened to listen to this um clip on m s n b c where hallie jackson um was interviewing some dude from he was like the deputy press secretary in the White House, and it was really kind of amazing um Uh, Nick assures me that we can drop in the audio. So I'm going to play a clip from it now.
1: All right. Let's talk about something else that um, I know that your uh, communications office wanted to get back to us on, which is when was the president's last negative test prior to his diagnosis? So we don't have that, but we're looking at this from a a public health perspective in that when there's an indication of a positive test or symptoms uh, showing, then you go back the 48 hours, you do your contact tracing. It's about preventing further transmission of the disease. And that's why we'll be focused on these uh, diagnostics and the ways of measuring transmissibility, because that's really the public health reason for releasing such information. It's uh, to prevent further transmission of the disease. So that's where we're focused. Sure. And to, and of course, to look at what potential exposures may have happened before the president's diagnosis. So on that last negative test, she says, you don't, you said you don't have that. You don't know, or you don't want to say. So uh, we don't have that. There's, well, I, I don't personally know. Right. And what there does is, that mean? Uh, there, there, okay. there have, are you, have you HIPAA asked Brian? Rules. I think Wednesday there's, you there's, said you're going to look into that. So, right. So Hallie, the, the president doesn't check all of his HIPAA rights at the door. Just when he becomes president, the doctors, uh, Obviously, share fulsome information with the President. The President uh, shares a great deal of information with the American public. We have gone through numerous briefings with the doctors, half a dozen memos from the doctors, his daily vitals uh, we put out yesterday. We've had briefings with the Chief after interacting with the President. We've had Kaylee come out and talk. I am now speaking with you about all the information we can share. Uh, but just because he's okay, President so. doesn't mean he shares every single detail of of you know, his entire Life, but we we do share enough information, certainly for public health purposes. Yeah. So, is it it's a privacy thing then? The reason why you're not saying the last negative test, HIPAA. So, so that that is one reason. Uh, The the fact of the matter is, there's a reason to share certain information. It's to prevent further transmission of the virus. It's public health purposes, and that's what we're doing.
0: Okay, so um, that wasn't the full thing. I just wanted to give you a taste of it. I think it is just. Amazing that the White House, first of all, uh, claiming HIPAA as even a partial justification for concealing when the president of the United States was first, was last uh, tested negative is uh, pretty freaking hilarious. Uh, The idea that somehow, you know, look, I mean, normal people are allowed to invoke HIPAA, just, just invoke privacy, nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to tell everybody out there all of my medical complaints and issues, although maybe for another podcast. Um, uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with valuing privacy. But this guy is the president of the United States. And it's one of these things. It's a lot like the tax return thing, where when he says that they're not going to, when he won't even confirm that they complied with the requirement at the Cleveland Clinic for the first debate, To provide a negative test within the first seven hours, um, what other rational conclusion are you supposed to come to, other than the fact that they that they're lying that that he was diagnosed earlier? I mean, um, if if they had the I mean, like the whole point of like this HIPAA thing, right? This privacy thing would make more sense if you were trying to uh conceal the fact that you had covid or some other condition right but um but in this case covid we know the president has covid that's sort of like by the rules of evidence and in, in just on earth with earth logic they've conceded that already he brags about it he talks about it we know he had covid so saying that oh but my privacy protects me revealing the last time i didn't have covid is bizarre. And the only thing that you can conclude from it, well, there are only two things you can conclude from it. Either they're covering up the fact that he did something wrong or that he his last negative test was much longer ago or that he refused to be tested or something like that. They're covering up something bad. Or they want people to think he's covering up something bad. And they've done this before where, you know, they've sort of teased some Bad seeming thing. They let the media go crazy, get its dress over its head, run around with its head on fire, and then say, haha, look at you crazy people. We weren't doing anything like that. So, I mean, that's possible, but really unlikely in this case. And so, you know, it's, and that's what I was saying is a lot like the tax return thing. You know, there is no, you know, it's it, this idea that somehow you can't release a tax return because you're being audited is nonsense. It's just flatly untrue. And Trump has said it now for four years, and so when the New York Times tax story came out, which you know was supposed to be a bombshell, and now it's it's barely remembered, um, uh, he goes on and says it's just lies, it's untrue, it's fake news, all the usual stuff. And the thing is, he has the, all the proof in the world to prove that it's lies and fake news. It's and it's not like he is hiding on some grand principle about his tax returns. He doesn't invoke that. I've never heard him invoke a grand principle. He he says, I'd love to release the tax returns once the audit is over, right? He doesn't say, screw you, tax returns are supposed to be private in this country. I know previous presidents did it, but uh, that's nonsense. I'm not going to do that. I would have some respect for that argument, but he's never offered that argument. He says he wants to, but this damn audit is preventing him from doing it, which is just not true. Um, so, but he wouldn't have to release the entirety of his tax returns. All he'd have to do is, my understanding is release the last page of the signature, the signature page that has the totals, which would humiliate the New York times. If, if he could do that, if he could produce it, if he had, if he's telling the truth on that stuff, it is entirely in his political interest to prove it. He has no political interest in hiding news hiding information that would make him look better. Um, And there's no principled reason for hiding that information that would make him look better. The only reason a reasonable person can conclude for why he is not releasing exculpatory information is because it's not exculpatory. And, um, like, I'm not obsessed about this. I just think it's, you know, it's annoying when people lie to you. And when people... And then when other people, you know, uh, believe, obviously, false statements. And um, anyway, I thought it was worth getting out there. Um, Anyway, where else to go? Um, Oh, so court packing. Let's talk about court packing for a second. I am really amazed by, um, you know, well, uh, let me put it this way. Kamala Harris. Uh, is sort of the the tip of the spear on this thing that you see on Twitter and op-ed pages increasingly now that that either court packing, as we have understood the term since, uh, what was it, 1937, where you had the stitch in time that saved nine, um, which was, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I mean, the, the phrase stitch in time was, that saves nine is this ancient um, English saying, I think it goes back to the 1700s, that basically means uh, if you stitch up a small tear, it's a very conservative principle. It's like a precautionary or preventative principle idea. If you stitch up a small tear, it just takes one stitch. If you leave it unattended, it will grow and it will take nine stitches, right? So it's an ounce of prevention leads to a, a, is better than a pound of cure kind of point. I, I, I would point out that that's not always true, as I wrote about in my underestimated um, and underappreciated book, Tyranny of Cliches, sometimes prevention is worse than uh, cleanup after the fact. You know, uh, one example of this is, if you're doing the dishes, if you take every precaution not to splash a bit of water around the sink, or get a bit of soap anywhere, um, it will take you 10 times longer to wash the dishes. Better to spray a little water and a little soap around and then just clean it up afterwards uh, than, you know, jigger everything towards um, prevention. This is one of my points about climate change. I think climate change is real. I'm not convinced it's quite the problem that a lot of the, you know, existential threat people are saying it is. But the most of the policy remedies that they... Want are preventative, you know. Let's put a wet blanket on the economy. Let's you know uh, switch to ancient technologies like wind. Um, let's you know thro- get get rid of fossil fuels. And I think you can make an argument. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm fine with the phasing out of coal, but you can make a pretty good argument that um, what you really want to do is step on the gas, as it were, and get as rich as possible as quickly as possible, so you can afford to figure out solutions, afford to figure out what is the climate change equivalent of the sponge you keep by the sink to clean up the extra mess. But as, as is pretty obvious at this point, this is a pretty serious tangent. The, the stitch in time that saves oh, so the stitch in time that saves nine was this move by the Supreme Court, most of you probably know this, where um, uh, Owen Roberts, one of the associate justices, I know, I know you're a huge fan, who isn't? Um, switched his position on uh, West Coast Hotel Co. v. Parrish, you know, which is a, just a fantastic read, and uh, and he switched it to I guess he gave in to um the threat of gave in to FDR's threat to pack the court um with extra justices who would become a uh a a rubber stamp for the executive branch. And the court, you know, according to historians, as far as I understand, I know there was a book about this 20 years ago, um, so, but I don't remember the all the details. But basically the court said, you know, it's worth tanking one to protect the integrity of the court. But since then, I guarantee you every high school textbook um, up until, I don't know, probably 2016 at least, uh, every historian I'm aware of, I've read a lot of books about FDR, You know, the court packing scheme, the court packing threat is one of a handful of things that good liberal historians are allowed to critique FDR about. Um, The other ones, you know, off the top of my head being uh, the internment of the Japanese, uh, not being particularly good on letting Jewish refugees into the country. Um, You know, the Brown scare was fine. Um. The um. I'm trying to think. Other things. Anyway, we should do an FDR episode at some point. Maybe another one will come to me. But basically, those are the three that you're that liberal historians are allowed to prove their dispassionate, you know, uh, objectivity when a judging. You know, FDR as the greatest president of the 20th century. Um, you're not allowed to talk about how he violated the norm of two terms for president. You're not allowed to talk about his odious. Uh, um, state of the union address in 1944, where he basically said anybody who, um, wants to get back to the freedom and normalcy of the 1920s, um, is basically reviving fascism here at home, even while we're fighting it abroad. Um, you're not allowed to talk about the things that the original house on American activities committee did. Um, you know, the, 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 the left, Love the House Un-American Activities Committee when it was going after fascists, which is fine and understandable, but also when it was going after Trotskyites. It was only when it started going after them in terms of like communists that all of a sudden it was democracy in peril. But again, we should have an FDR episode. Um, but the stitch in time that saved nine, this court packing scheme that FDR came up with, that's what court packing has meant all of my life. That is what court packing has meant since he tried to pack the court. And what Kamala Harris tried to do was say, you know what real court packing is? It's putting a whole bunch of white men on the federal judiciary. It's packing them with white men. She tried to do this race card nonsense with it. And, you know, look, hey, I'd love it if Trump appointed a bunch of qualified black conservative justices um, or judges. That would be great. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I, I don't never you know, say, yes, another white guy, you know, put another point on the board for the pale penis people. I don't care about that identity politics stuff. Um, But I do like that he appointed conservative judges. And I think it's perfectly right to say that um, if you believe it and not, again, go, you know, Jen Rubin on this kind of thing. Um, But so that's the one tactic that you see all over the place is to say, oh there are lots of different kinds of court packing and you know numerical court packing isn't a problem really it's you know democracy yada 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 and um and uh the other one is just to simply say that there's nothing wrong with court packing and uh it is amazing how much that has spread across the left and across mainstream liberals the same mainstream liberals who are constantly decrying the violation of norms and the um the you know um, transgression of you know, established modes of how we practice democracy and yada, yada, yada. And I agree with the left on a lot of those. I just don't think that because you're mad about the things that Trump or that the Republicans have done, um, that means if you can't beat them, join them. That's you know, one of the reasons why I think the, the right went so nuts as I was talking about earlier, is because they took that attitude. They were like, well, they win everything, which they didn't. That's not true. Um, But conservatives and Republicans convinced themselves that the left wins everything and that Republicans and conservatives never win. And so they said, well, the left is all Alinskyite. The left, you know, violates norms. So we have to fight fire with fire and do the same thing too. And that's how civilizations implode. Um, And, you know, there's you know, the simple moral rules that you teach to your children, um, don't completely vanish. Look, I understand politics is hardball and all that stuff, but, um, doing things that you think are wrong because the other side is doing wrong things, um, is not an uplifting political philosophy or strategy. Um, you know, I'm one of these guys who just, you know, I, I believe in the basic tenets of classical liberalism. I believe in the basic tenets of, 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 modern american or modern anglo-american conservatism um and uh and i think that you know we need more people leaping to the defense of these things rather than just simply coming up with more and more absurd mobius strip rationalizations for uh doing politics as the crow flies as michael oakshot might say and maybe that's a good segue to talking about um, the "We the People" series from the Bradley Foundation. Um, I've talked about them before; uh, they do great stuff. And uh, the latest episode has my friend and AEI colleague Frederick Hess on it. And uh, Fred has written a bunch. For, I should say Rick has written a bunch for the Dispatch. We love having him. Um, he does fantastic work on education at the American Enterprise Institute and. Um, and he's the guest on the latest episode. Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People, the Bradley Speaker Series, is a new video series that offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit Bradley FDN, so they've abbreviated foundation, so it's B R A D L E Y F D N. Dot org slash liberty, BradleyFDN.org slash liberty, to watch their most recent episode featuring renowned education expert Frederick Hess, Rick to his friends. Hess is a resident scholar and the director of education policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He has the office down the hall from me. Um, he works on K through 12 and higher education issues. He's the author of Education Week's popular blog, Rick Hess Straight Up. He's a regular contributor to Forbes and The Hill and to The Dispatch, and serves as the executive editor of Education Next. In this episode, Hess addresses the complex issues surrounding the start of the new school year. He gives his take on the reopening of schools, the impact of social unrest on the learning environment, and what the outcome of the elections means for education. So that's Bradley, with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes debut weekly, so you can go back often or subscribe to their YouTube channel to be sure that you get notifications for each new one. We thank the Bradley Foundation, uh, We the People Speaker Series, and um, for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, and do check it out. Um, I know I said that we should do this FDR um, episode at some point, which I do think would be fun, but it just reminded me that we had a... R- dispatch reader, um, ask if we could do an all Woodrow Wilson episode. And I kind of feel like we, we did one, um, or at least I tried to do one with David Pietruza, but we kind of got, um, scrambled on it. Um, I would love to do one. I, I, I won't you know burn through all my standard indictments right here. Um, but, um, I should also say that I apologized on a recent episode of The Remnant because we left out the scary music or the scary sound, uh, the uruk Urkai sound for um, Woodrow Wilson, which has been a staple of this podcast for a very long time um, because people told me that we had. Um, one guy said this proved I was becoming a squish um, because we left it out. And then uh, Nick and Caleb, our, our podcast super producer, Uh, told me that's not true we included it for two mentions but didn't include it for two others uh which is not quite as bad uh but i did make it clear that whenever his name is mentioned uh we should have some sort of it doesn't have to be the same sound every time i don't think although i like tradition uh but we should um uh definitely keep it in there because he was the worst president of the 20th century and arguably the worst president in american history um and uh i'm not gonna i'll save it for a diatribe when my brain isn't so fried um to do the full spiel about wilson but suffice it to say i am right and i was right way ahead of the time i you know i I, you know if i can't brag on this podcast where can i brag i mean i can't in front of my wife i can't in front of my kid my dogs let me brag, but there's only so much satisfaction you get from that. Um, when I wrote liberal fascism, I was mocked repeatedly from all sorts of left wing corners. The only people who didn't mock me were sort of the Claremonster crowd who had been on, had Wilson's number for a very long time. Um, but, you know, like the New York Times mocking headline uh, for the review, which was in weird ways positive for the first, you know, third. Um, basically endorsed the major thesis of the book before uh, sort of said, oh, but in the second half, he you know makes mistakes or is wrong or overstates things or whatever, which is all fair and fine. Um, but anyway, the, the headline for the review was Heil Woodrow, um, which was seen as sort of ludicrous. The, the New Republic in the early 2000s, I, I want to say for like their 90th anniversary, but I'm not sure. Um, one of their major anniversary issues, they had kind of, it wasn't a Mount Rushmore picture, but it was like five, the five Titans of 20th century liberalism looking down, reading the new Republic. And one of them was Woodrow Wilson. Um, and you know, the, I'm you know, with all of this sort of cancel culture stuff and, and, and BLM ideology stuff permeating things it's now all of a sudden acceptable and mainstream to point out how racist would, you know, Wilson was. Um, but, um, you know, I get zero credit for any of that. And I just, you know, if, if, if I am not, as, as Hillel says, if I am not for myself, who will be? Um, anyway, what else? So I, you know, I cannot even remember what the Wednesday G file was about. Oh, the Wednesday G file for you non-subscribers, uh, very briefly, was about Trump's just implosion with senior citizens, and which is one of the reasons why he issued this video, this video from earlier this week, maybe even yesterday. Time is a flat circle, um, in which it was in all caps on Twitter. At least it was to the my, to my favorite people in the world, and. You know, and he does this thing where he says, you know, just one of these bizarre Trump things where he says, many people don't know I'm a senior, but I am a senior. But maybe you shouldn't tell people that I'm a senior. Um, to which my response is, who the hell doesn't know that Donald Trump is a senior, is a senior citizen, and you know, and he's in his seventies. Um, but he, you know, he likes this fiction that people can't tell how old he is, which explains the thick coat of makeup and the 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 hair not found in nature um uh but anyway so the g file was about how i think that one of the reasons why he is imploding with seniors which is you know doesn't normally happen with republican presidential candidates the last i believe the last republican president to lose seniors was george w bush in 2000 and even there it was by a very narrow margin and Trump depending on what poll you believe is um uh between 20 and almost not quite 30 uh points down among seniors and i think there are a bunch of reasons for it um you know seniors are disproportionately female and trump has problems with the uh, with women voters up and down every age bracket but i think the more important reason is that he um you know the the one thing we know about seniors to you know Drop some serious logic on you is that they're old um it's sort of like the one thing that we know about frogs is they're frogs. one thing we know about old people is that they're old and one of the other things that we tend to know about old people is they tend to go to the doctor more and they're disproportionately in old age homes and they tend to listen to their doctors and if they didn't trust their doctors, they would go see some other doctor and their doctors have been telling them that covid is um Really dangerous for them, and they probably know more people who died of COVID than anybody any other demographic, because they're the demographic that dies from COVID. And um, and so when you actually when you're paying attention to a pandemic, because it directly threatens your life or the life of your loved ones in ways that are less theoretical and more day to day, you pay more attention to how the government is responding to this stuff. And um, and also you have more time to pay attention because you're probably disproportionately retired and you're watching the news more. And And I suspect that, uh, that that's one of the main reasons why he's eroded his support among seniors. Everything's fun and games when everything's going fine and, and Trump is entertaining. But when the economy's in tatters and and you're, you know, your life is in peril, or at least you're being told that your life is in peril, you're going to react to it differently. And again, I know lots of old people, lots and lots of old people um, who don't think the pandemic is that, as big a deal as people have made it out to be, who you know, basically subscribe to the ever-evolving you know, Bill Bennett arguments about, about COVID. And that's fine. I just don't think there are large numbers of them. Or put it another way, I think the number of old people who see it that way um are a minority of voters and i think that's one of the reasons why the polling is like that and i think the rest of the wednesday g file was just simply an extension of this thing about how trump is determined to not do what is in his best interest and it's weird and i'll give you just i don't think i wrote about this anywhere and i mentioned it on twitter i think it is lunacy that donald trump has, and at least of, as of this podcast, and I haven't followed the news much this afternoon, so maybe it's changed, but I doubt it. As of this podcast, he is refusing to do a virtual, re- virtual debate with Joe Biden and is instead going to do a rally. And um, this is one of these funny, quirky things about these times. I think I give better advice to Donald Trump than most of his biggest fans. I wrote about this recently. His biggest fans do him a disservice by constantly telling him he's done nothing wrong and he should double down on the behavior that has got him into trouble. And uh this is and that's the weird thing is that the way the conservative movement is actually supposed to work is conservatives are supposed to criticize republicans when they do wrong things and that way you get them to be cor- to correct their behavior. But because Trump is immune to um, criticism and he only really responds to praise, it is very difficult to do that, particularly when his most ardent fans in the base punish anybody who gives him constructive criticism. So it's left to me this, you know, I mean, I don't use the phrase never Trumper, but the people who hate my guts call me that all the time. Um, It falls to people, you know, in in the supposedly never Trumper camp to actually give him better advice than his biggest fans give him because we're not in the business of fluffing him. And so it is, it's, it's obvious to me, and I, again, I could be wrong, but I'm just telling the truth as I see it. It's obvious to me that he would benefit from participating in a remote debate. And I'll just give you a few reasons. One, he needs to do anything that he can do to change the dynamic of the race. He is losing by double digits now. And when you're losing by double digits, you need to seize what opportunities you can to get more voters than are currently planning on voting for you. This is not, you know, complicated stuff. You don't have to be a master cephologist to understand these things. Cephology, by the way, is the study of elections. It derived from the Greek for uh, word for stone or pebble, ceph something, um, because that's what they used as sort of ballots to vote. And, Ancient Athens or wherever, probably not ancient Sparta, right? Um, but anyway, you don't have to be a master cephologist to understand this point. Um, if you're losing a football game, you need more points than the other team, and you need to do things that will get you more points, or you will lose. And I understand this argument. Sarah Isger, my colleague, makes a very good argument that it's a base election and that he needs to just keep stoking the base, but the base is shrinking, and the only people who are still receptive to, you know, the rally type stuff that he wants to do are the people already in his column. So just as an opportunity to change the narrative and the trajectory of the race, he should take any opportunity he can. Second, he was not well served by his debate style in the first debate. He, he was rude. He interrupted, he shouted, um, he did some good things. I thought in the first third, he was, he was, you know, he he was certainly more substantive and answered questions more honestly in the beginning. But these things, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, you know, Roger Ailes, when he was consulting for television stations, he would uh, fly into various media markets for his meetings the night before, and he would watch the evening news with the sound off. And he would just judge the talent by their body language. Um, and that was how he drew, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that all he looked at, but that was, according to lore, that was a big part of his decision about what talent should be promoted, what talent should be cut, is that you actually, your lizard brain is better at picking up all sorts of things. And Trump's body language, Trump's demeanor, Trump's tone um, turned off a lot of people. And I, I think the, the the poll, you know, rapid poll stuff is right about that. Um, and so is the conventional wisdom. And certainly that's how it was covered, which shapes attitudes as well. And one of his, which we talked about in the dispatch live event after the first debate, uh, one of his big blunders was not letting Biden talk because when Biden starts talking, the odds of him saying something weird increase dramatically. Um, and there were a bunch of times where he was, it, it certainly looked like, you know, the, the little homunculus driving the car in his head was falling asleep at the wheel and we we're going to get some fantastic run-on sentence. And Trump interrupted him and stopped him and made the focus back on him. Because Trump likes negative attention more than no attention. And he seemed to be kind of terrified that Biden might say something that would hurt him, persuade people not to like him or whatever. And he wouldn't give Biden enough rope to hang himself with anything. If they do a remote debate, the mute thing actually works. I don't think that mute button idea for the microphones on a live debate would work because, you know, you'd still hear it, The other mic would still pick it up and it would still distract the other speaker. But on remote, Biden would get his full two minutes to talk. And we know that Biden is not good at speaking directly into a camera. You know, I, I think a lot of this, he's always using a teleprompter stuff is BS, but um, he struggles with it. He actually feeds off audiences too, and um, um, but for him, it gives him you know that that pep and, and vigor that a seventy-year-old seventy-eight-year-old dude needs. Um, and denying him that would increase the likelihood that Biden would meander um, through his answers. It would also impose discipline on Trump, so he wouldn't be constantly interrupting, which would leave a better impression among voters of Trump. But he's not going to do that. And instead, he's going to go do some rally where I am sure the all the people who show up uh, are going to vote for him, but they were going to vote for him if he didn't have a rally. And I understand, you know, there are some political scientists who say that rally really, rallies really do matter, but there's a difference between necessary and sufficient. Um, and, I, and you, only, you have to believe that the shy Trump voter thing is not just real, but this massive hidden tsunami out there. And I, I do find it pretty funny how many people are placing all of their faith on this idea of the shy Trump voter. Um, I don't think there are a lot of shy Trump voters. I've written about this before. I've talked about this before. Um, if there were a lot of shy Trump voters, the differences in polling between... Uh, you know, uh, online internet polling and phone call polling would be much more marked. They're not. Uh, The data suggests from 2016 that um, what we thought were a lot of shy Trump voters were in fact a large number of undecideds who made their decision at the last minute. And that's a different thing entirely than a shy Trump voter. A shy Trump voter implies someone who is convinced that they're going to vote for Trump or for Clinton. I mean, a shy voter you know, going back to the Bradley effect or, you know, the shy Tory effect. It's someone who's, who's decided that they're going to vote, but they're lying about it. Um, an undecided voter is someone who decides late. And according to the, the studies I've seen, the undecided voters broke heavily for Donald Trump at the la- in the last week. And um, the problem with the shy Trump voter thing, which wasn't a shy Trump voter thing to begin with, Repeating itself this time, is there remarkably few undecided voters, and Biden is much more popular among Democrats and Independents than Hillary Clinton was in 2016. And so, you know, the, the thesis that all Trump does needs to do is just rev up the base. Uh, that base has been shrinking, and if your only way to fix the shortfall is with these shy Trump voters, I think you're going to be sorely disappointed. But even if I'm wrong about that, there is just something on a sort of a psychological level, I think is hilarious that all of these strident people who are all in for Trump and think he's going to win and rah, 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 wave the foam finger around and all that. um, Their argument hinges on the idea that a bunch of people who are too afraid, you know, too cowardly to admit to someone on the phone that they're actually going to vote for Trump. I mean, that's kind of interesting, right? That, that the, the winning slice of this coalition, are, are the, who love, you know, this strong man and all these masculine virtues and all that, um, don't have enough of the intestinal fortitude themselves to answer a question to a pollster. Um, and moreover, I mean, I don't think that's true, but I think the theory is true. Um, I mean, I think the theory is funny, but Uh, more of it, it just, it, it defies my general experience with people who are all in for Trump, you know, this idea that the silent majority is behind Trump, you know, just my experience, it doesn't scan. It seems to me that the minority that is behind Trump is not at all silent. Um, but I could be wrong, you know, I mean, maybe in these suburbs, maybe the rioting and all that kind of stuff is, has, has fooled all the pollsters and it'll be very different, but it sure as hell is not looking that way. Um, so anyway, I didn't mean to get, oh, that was about something that I had written, uh, podcast this week. I did a great one with Steve, where we talked about the, on the eve of the one year anniversary of the dispatch, uh, things are going great. Uh, but you know, it's one of these things where every time, it's sort of like a video game, every time you unlock an achievement or accomplish something, it unlocks 10 other things that you want to do. And there are a whole bunch of things that we wanted to do, but couldn't because of the pandemic, a lot of event stuff. We are going to have that kind of stuff rolling out uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but there's all sorts of stuff in the podcast space that we want to do. Um, we still want to beef up dramatically our reporting. Um, but, you know, as, as Steve was explaining on the first Remnant, we, um, we budgeted... Now, we were conservative, as I think you should be. Um we we projected that we were gonna have, I think it was forty two hundred paid members by the end of twenty twenty. And the last time I checked, we were on the cusp of nineteen thousand heading with some velocity towards twenty thousand um paid members at the beginning of October. And we're really hoping uh, that by, you know, certainly by the end of 2020, we will have, um, beaten that projection, uh, at least fivefold, right? Cause we've already beaten it f- fourfold. If my math is correct, someone will correct me if it's not, I'm sure. Um, and then we just did sort of straight punditry about, um, how the race was going and all that. I think it still holds up if you're worried that it seems outdated, but you know, that's up to you to decide a more evergreen podcast was the one I did with my friend, Jonathan Adler, um, on marijuana. And then in the second half, we got kind of deep into the weeds about classical liberalism and what conservatism is for and whether fusionism will survive. And, um, I could talk about that stuff with him all day long. Um, but the weed stuff was actually really, really interesting and in, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, but since I mentioned video games, I was talking about Steve there's one point that that Jonathan made, you know, sort of borrowing from a great essay from Peter Suderman, which I've been thinking about, in part because I play this, um, this uh, Star Trek Fleet Command thing on my phone when listening to podcasts or watching the news and stuff, and uh, and he was making the point, and one of my one of my gripes against weed, I don't think uh, weed's not evil. Um, I think weed damages some people's lives. I've just known people whose lives were damaged by weed um it doesn't have the same effect on everybody i don't think it's physically addictive but i do think for some people it's psychologically addictive um as i've mentioned on here before i think one of the best arguments for um being pretty vigilant about your kids not smoking weed other than the the studies about brain stuff um which are pretty scary is that even if your kid can handle it even if your kid still gets good grades and all that kind of thing um uh, weed destroys the benefits of boredom. Um, and I, and a lot of other things do too, you know, handheld devices and iPhones and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're a problem as well, but I think everybody of my generation and older at the very least, and a bunch of people younger than me, they know, they sort of know what I'm talking about, that being bored, um, you know, one summer, vacation when you were a kid, on long car rides with your family, um, not being able to play your handheld Coleco football um or any of that kind of stuff. Um it made you read things that you otherwise wouldn't read. It made you do things you otherwise wouldn't do. Start projects, um search out antidotes for your boredom. And the thing about being high, which I have been, it has been a long time, but the thing about being high on weed Is that you can find great enjoyment, time-sucking enjoyment, um, watching reruns of The Golden Girls and eating Doritos. I mean, that's why lava lamps became lava lamps is because you could just veg out watching them while high, and it's and and that sort of the constructive parts of boredom are hugely important uh, for teenagers, particularly if you have parents who force those teenagers to use that boredom constructively. And Pot just steals that. But anyway, back to video games. Uh, Jonathan made this point, again, borrowing from Peter Sutterman, who we got to have on the podcast at some point. Um, um, you know, we have his, we've had his better half on a few times, Megan McArdle, but, um, you know, Sutterman's an interesting guy. Anyway, he, you know, he made this point of that the best video games now... And and have for a while, um, they provide a simulation of work and productivity. Um, I remember there was a um there was a scene in Big Bang Theory where um uh Howard was saying how you know he and his wife are so beat, his wife has been working so hard at the office, and um, and and Howard has just been killing himself. Um unlocking new levels of the new Batman video game. And I know what he means. This Star Trek thing I play, it's it's brilliant cultivation of um, this sense of constantly having small accomplishments that egg you on to other accomplishments. And um, you know, one of the reasons why I used to be a big video game guy, in fact, I still have the slightest bit of a scar on the inside of my left thumb from the reverse button of the defender video game which i used to play mostly at pizza park on first avenue as a teenager um and i got so calloused up from hitting the reverse on it because i was very good at defender um but one of the reasons you know when i decided to start taking my life much more seriously because i was a bit of a screw-up um i cut out a, I cut out for the most part almost all sports not playing them but watching them um you know i'm one of those hypocrites who will tune in to the playoffs or the super bowl because i like watching um, football and, and baseball. Um, but you know, the amount of time sucked from it. I just, there were things I felt like I needed to read and do, um, take my life seriously. And another thing that I cut out was smoking weed. I mean, I had already sort of tapered off that for a while, but, um, and another thing was just video games, you know, um, it was a slow transition, but I didn't, you know, the last thing I needed was to get invested in world of Warcraft and that kind of thing. And anyway, the, the thing that these video games do is for people who are checked out and getting high and don't feel like there's a place for them in the workplace, uh, they can feel like they're getting a sense of accomplishment or what I've often talked about here, earn success from video games. And I don't think that's all evil or all terrible. Um, and there was this tiny sliver of a sliver of people who actually can make a, live, make a living out of doing that kind of stuff or find a way to translate some of that stuff into a living in some way. But you know, I look back on the time I spent playing um, you know, Atari 2600 when I could have been doing other things. And I, then I think about, well, I was only a little kid. Imagine what you know, the world building of, of video games, what a suck that must be um, and how much more seductive it must be for, if you're smoking pot, um, you're basically just checking out. And I I have a hard time believing that when these people turn mostly men, right, uh, turn 40, they look back at those, you know, years of sitting around playing video games or, or not playing video games or just smoking pot or whatever, as things to be particularly proud of. And I'm not trying to be a, super judgy finger waggy guy here i know lots of highly functioning people who smoke pot and um but they keep it in check sort of like with booze you know you get moderation is really really important um but uh if you give yourself over to that stuff i think it's bad and um and the the race to legalize everywhere in the country um it's not quite everywhere yet but it's you look you should look at the trend line um for some irreducible number of people, they're going to get sucked into all of that. And I think that's a shame. I'm not saying, you know, this is the libertarian part of me. I'm not saying that simply because that happens, that therefore it should be banned everywhere. But I do think we should make it much easier for, for parents, just like with porn on the web and a lot of other things, we should make it easier for parents to police and regulate their kids' lives until they're out of the house. And um, there's not enough interest in that. And all right, that's my that's the end of my sort of sanctimony sadness thing. Um, again, thanks to everybody i i I know you get tired of me saying this. I still have no idea if I'm doing this right. Um, but I get nice feedback about the solo remnants, and I get nice feedback about what we're doing at the dispatch. and um, please let me know what you think about the G file if you can read it. Um, and for all of these things again. If you if if you're one of the people who really likes this stuff and appreciates it, the best thing you can do for us after becoming a paid member um, is spread the word. You know, just a little marketing, um, a little promotion. Don't don't say anything that you're uncomfortable saying. Don't do anything that you're uncomfortable doing. You know, I, if, if you're not sincerely in you know you know in our corner and all of this, that's fine. You don't have to do anything. But if you want to help out and you're looking for ways to help out, um, that's a real concrete way um, to you know expand our audience, which then allows us to do so many more of the things that we want to do. We're very happy with the trajectory of the audience, but we are greedy to make this thing bigger and more successful and do more of the things that we think are really important, not just until election day, but um, for years to come. And for those of you who have joined us and helped out, um on this just past the one year anniversary of the soft launch of the dispatch dispatch it wasn't even the hard launch of the dispatch um we really are incredibly grateful and you help not just me but a lot of us get through some bad and rough days so have a great long weekend i'll be alone with the animals all weekend uh the fair jessica and my lovely daughter are doing their annual um fall trip to new england um And it started out one year because I couldn't go with them. And then it became this mommy-daughter thing. And uh, they'll have a great time. And I'll be here tweeting pictures of various quadrupeds. And I'll see you next time.